0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 72 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, a focus on the reimaginating of South African business and universities after the pandemic. We will talk with Discovery's founders, Adrian Gore and Barry Swartzberg, and also hear from Professor Francis Peterson, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Free State University. In the episode, we also investigate the racial gap in clinical trials for a coronavirus vaccine and hear how non-compliance from Europe's youth is causing a resurgence in the number of infections there and mortalities inside covid-19 Trumpers news South Africa's coronavirus infections continue to slide with active cases falling another 4000 on Wednesday and at the current 125000 they're now at their lowest in over a month But there were 259 deaths on Wednesday, taking total mortalities from the virus to above 11,000. Globally, however, new infections remain stubbornly high. 285,000 were registered on Wednesday, increasing the number of active cases to 6.3 million. India has now clearly taken over as the hottest spot on earth, with 67,000 new cases on Wednesday, That compares with 58,000 in Brazil and 54,000 in the USA. Between them, these three countries have registered over half of mankind's 20.8 million infections and 42% of the world's 750,000 deaths to the virus. Later in this episode, we'll hear a few times from various guests how collaboration is set to become a major factor in a post-pandemic world. It's already beginning to happen in Big Pharma, where Gilead, creator of the COVID-19 drug Remdesivir, has announced that it will work with 40 other companies in North America, Europe and Asia to produce enough of the drug to treat 2 million people by the end of this year. Competitors like Pfizer are stepping in to help produce the Remdesivir that's needed, in the fight against the pandemic, analysts say this is a heartening trend, and many more collaborations will be required to vanquish COVID-19. Inside COVID-19 from Discoveries. Adrian Gore and Barry Swartzberg were the star attractions in the latest in a Biz News webinar series where we hear the stories from the founders of iconic South African companies. As the webinar drew to a close, they fielded a fascinating question about what business will be like after the pandemic. And that comes from Hassan Khan, who says, how has COVID changed Discovery's strategy? It's a great question. I mean, if anything, COVID, I hope it doesn't sound
1: like, you know, um, trite, but if anything, it's accentuated You strategy. Know, so the issue of, making people healthier or protecting them and the issue of resilience and all the stuff we've been trying to achieve. COVID I think has accelerated that that uh that, that kind of trend. So everything about behaviour, about technology, about purpose. I mean COVID has accentuated everything. So to an extent, I mean we've had to accentuate vitality, bring it into the home, you know, deal with gyms not being open at this stage. But 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 uh factually it has accentuated and I think mean, accelerated our strategy dramatically. So all of our partners are trying to figure out how they go, move faster uh, in this direction. So Alec, if anything, I think has endorsed the strategy. I think the challenge will be whether we can run fast enough to really capitalize on, on what a, co- a post-COVID world will be. So uh, these are tragic, difficult times um, in every respect. But I think from a discovery perspective, um, I think the opportunities are pretty substantial um, as we move through this COVID period. That'd be my view. I don't know how Barry feels.
2: Yeah, I mean just to elect the, uh the I mean the, the company's response has been unbelievable. Uh, from Discovery Health with under the uh, Ryan Noach leadership there, they've done just really phenomenal work. Uh changed the products, got staff working from home, changed the products, We're in our life insurance business in vitality. It's uh I think the company response has been uh significant and I, I hope our clients have, have felt that. Um not only in South Africa and the UK as well, I think the response has been great. I think our clients, I mean, you know, people are exercising at home and enabling that. And also to our international partners, you know, we've, we've taken the learnings from South Africa and the UK and we've, you know, helped our international partners as well. So I think it's been substantial work done. You know, it's been, a, I think, a, quite a major change to organisations. I think there's been substantial work done and, and I think positive, you know, that, that, you know, during this tough time, you know, typically these kinds of companies don't do anything, you know, uh, stay close to their clients. But things like Vitality have enabled us to, to stay close to our clients.
0: And, and the future, when you have a look now at, uh, a post-COVID South Africa, I think, a, I think
1: a post-COVID South Africa, I remain I I think that we've understated how well the country's done. I mean, infection rates are coming down. I think the healthcare system has largely coped with it, both public and private. These are difficult times, and I'm I'm, I'm not being, again, naively optimistic. I think the healthcare system has done pretty well. I think we've got massive economic challenges, but I remain of the view as tough as things are, as difficult as the debates are. I think we will move through this, Alec. Um, It's going to take a very concerted effort. Uh, between business and government to rebuild and to get back to economic growth. Not easy at all. I hope we'll hear more from the President over the next number of weeks about you know, how things will loosen up and whatever. But I, I have to say we remain focused on our, on our purpose. We're building a bank in a very difficult time, which as I said before, is something we would do. And uh, as tough as it is, we will come through this. I'm pretty sure of that.
0: Harry, I spoke this morning with Professor Francis Peterson, who is the Vice-Chancellor of uh, a uh, Free State University he was formerly Deputy Vice Chancellor at UCT. And he's been interviewing a lot of executives and, uh, chief executives. And he shared a little bit of that. We'll, it'll be on our Inside COVID program tonight. And he was saying that the big thrust that came through was that businesses understand collaboration is the next big story. That it's not the old story, uh, that, that we might have gone into COVID with. But to get out of this, we need to collaborate, not just, um, business with businesses with other businesses but very much business with government and to almost have this concerted effort that perhaps covid will end up being a good thing uh in the long run for for the strategy of the country is there any sense in that definitely
2: i think that uh, you know in today people it's specialize and it's very difficult to be all things to all people as an organization. You know, you've got to focus on what you're good at and what you can do as an organization. And I think that applies to governments, it applies to all organizations. You got to specialize in what makes you good as an organization and then collaborate with others that can offer services and, and products that can, you know, um, can augment what you're currently doing. I mean, we do that all the time and we, I mean, we're a partner to other large uh, uh, uh Insurance company. So it's our business model. We embrace it. We we like to collaborate with others. We I think we make good partners uh, internationally and in South Africa. And I think that's exactly what what it's going to be about. But people becoming more and more specialised in what they're doing and, and collaborating more and, and working together. You know, and I I, I couldn't agree more with that, Professor. than I think the government, here in South Africa, if it embraces private sector. Together with government, we could do such fantastic things together.
0: But Adrian, last question for you before we go: What makes a good partner?
1: Um, I think trust and collaboration. Frankly, I think those points you've raised. I mean, obviously, you need commonality of, of vision and purpose, integration and about marketing, whatever. But I think a good partner is about shared values, about trust and collaboration. And I think, Eric, to your earlier point, I think. You know, a lot of the debate about the new world is do you work at the office or do you work at home? It's not about those physical things. I think that the the companies that will thrive are the ones where the intangible issues of values, of purpose, you know, are are completely alive. And I think Barry's point, collaborating with partners that you trust, um, that you can build with, that you can rely on, um, is fundamental. And uh, I think we've done a good job of that. I think it's good for us for the future. So these are tough times, but I think uh, very profound times.
0: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Reimagining South Africa and the economy in particular after COVID-19 is something on many people's minds, including Professor Francis Peterson, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Free State. Prof, lovely to be talking with you this morning. You've been having conversations with chief executives and executives around the country to see how they're going to be operating after the pandemic left us. What was the overriding conclusion of those discussions for you?
3: A lot of our effort has been on managing the COVID-19 pandemic as an organisation. And at the University of the Free State, we have taken a sort of a very project management approach in terms of how to manage it. Multidisciplinary of nature, including scenario planning, science that we actually use, culture experts to understand the culture of the organisation. But there was one aspect that I indicated to the university that while our focusing in terms of managing COVID-19, we should actually look ahead and try to say, well, how would the university and the university sector look like post-COVID? There were two principles that I think came out quite clearly. The one is doing more was less. That was the one key principle that came out. And the other one was doing good while doing business. And that for me were two themes that were actually talking how serious business is in terms of building competitiveness, building and contribute towards economic growth, but also making sure that communities aren't left behind. What
0: about from a university's point of view, lecture halls in future might look very different to what we've been used to in the past. How are you reimagining that side of the business in actually educating the learners?
3: So I do see that universities, and I want to say that we've got 26 public universities in South Africa. And those universities, there's probably only, with the exception of UNISA, all of those other universities are residential universities. And I do foresee that we will still have the residential university, but the delivery model will stretch in a continuum from face to face to complete online. And what South African universities and most of the universities globally have done during the period of COVID, is not really teaching online. I would say they're teaching remotely, and there's a big difference between remote teaching and online teaching. The way that we design also our residences, because our residences are at the moment designed and also funded on the basis that students will be here for most period of the time. So we're also looking at how does a flexible residential model look like. At the moment, we believe that we already have started with new designs in lecture theatres with a flipped classroom methodology, and that happened a few years ago. So that will be new thinking that we would introduce. We also will have to repurpose some of it because our members of staff, there will be certain categories that actually can work 95% from home or remotely. And I say 95% because I think there still needs to be some social engagement that needs to happen. And therefore, you probably need hot desks for those. And those offices could also be repurposed. That repurposing, Alec, is one of the things that I've been arguing in our university, and we are now taking it forward, is the creation of what we call the Interdisciplinary Centre for Digital Futures. And what I've been arguing is to say that the university, there are three values that university has that we can convert in a value proposition to society. The one would be to say that we've got seven different faculties in our university, but most universities have for different faculties. If you create the ability for those disciplines to be able to blur one another, then you create sort of new thinking on the edges. Secondly. If you have a very robust engagement with private sector industry and commerce as a university, so we've got our advisory boards, we've got our entrepreneurial thinking, we've got research and projects, so I want to see the university campus as a buzz of society and the economy engaging. And then thirdly, if you've got a knowledge of the deep digital futures or for IR technologies such as machine learning artificial intelligence, big data, high-performance computing, all of those, and you have the ability to mix all of those three into one, and you say the outcome should be a benefit of society, you then start to really address, or could address, global issues. Because global issues is not disciplinary of nature, as you would know. But the major challenge is how do you create an environment for those thinkers to get together? If I, like Alec, it's easy to have a conversation, but I want to have a deliberate engagement. And I think spaces at the university should be designed more and more to capitalise that type of thinking. And that is where I believe the repurposing should also happen.
0: Very exciting future. How far away are you from it?
3: Well, at the moment, we started towards the end of last year by just getting groups together together, where there's already this sort of thinking happening, and where we have digital input that is infused in that, so we put we call it sort of roundback sessions that we have. And for the first one, well, for the past eight months, we're a series of those engagement. And there's there's already about over 50 of those engagement happening. I'm still trying to allocate the right space at the university for that get together. But that sort of engagement is already happening. And I think once that starts to happen in a few spaces on campus where they can actually physically get together, and due to COVID-19, we only could get together virtually anyway, that momentum is going to kick up. I think it's going to grow extensively and probably exponentially. And in my conversations with the private sector, with the executives, I also mentioned that and. And you could clearly see most of them would like to get involved because there's agriculture, there's health, there's the finance sector, there's the mining sector, and I think it's going to be a major buzz. And again, it doesn't only have to happen in one university because the collaboration means we, for instance, just an example, combine, we've got a music school, the Odean Music School, a School for Music Act on our campus, and we're engaging with our Department of Neurology in the Yale Sciences Faculty, And now the Neurosciences Institute at the University of Cape Town to see, well, how neuroscience can help us to improve the performance of students studying certain instruments within the School of Music, the Dance School of Music. Now, that's the type of thing that I think we need to do more.
0: And a big change from the past accelerated by (laughs) COVID-19.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Inside COVID-19, from
0: News. Our next story looks at the race gap in clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines. In yesterday's Inside COVID-19 podcast, episode 71, Discovery's Dr. Nalutandu Nemwatsirani stressed how important it is that South Africa is now participating in clinical trials of vaccines as it brings much-needed racial diversity into the patient pool. In the rush to develop an effective vaccine, many drug companies are doing their best to fast track clinical trials. But these trials have a major diversity problem with most participants being white. It's a serious issue as the disease disproportionately affects people of color as we hear in this report from our partners at Bloomberg.
4: In the rush to develop a vaccine or treatment for COVID-19, drug companies are fast tracking clinical trials. But those trials have a major diversity problem. Participants in major drug trials range from 70% to 89% white. This is a big problem, considering it's a disease that disproportionately affects people of color. Kristen V. Brown reports that failing to account for minority groups could potentially impact how well a drug eventually works for those that the virus has harmed the most. COVID-19 is not an equal opportunity threat. Over the past six months, Black, Latino, and Indigenous Americans have suffered more from the virus than anyone else. The statistics here can be shocking. For example, in cases where race is known, Black lives have accounted for more than 22% of the national death toll, even though they make up about 13% of the population. So I was surprised when I took a look at who has participated in clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. It turns out that at least so far, most of them have been white. You might wonder why this matters. After all, race is not biological. It's a social construct. But the more we understand about human biology, the clearer it is that a person's individual biology can influence certain things, like whether they are more susceptible to certain diseases or if certain drugs work for them this can be connected to genetics or the environment you grew up in and both of those things can be connected to race so if you know that a disease especially impacts minority populations it's really important to make sure that those populations are represented in clinical trials i talked about this with john beagle a researcher at the national institute of allergy and infectious diseases Has worked on multiple early stage clinical trials for COVID-19.
5: The way I would frame it is that the diversity should match the scientific objective. If the objective is determining efficacy and understanding how the vaccine prevents disease in different populations and how effective it is in different populations, then that diversity is very critical. The last thing that you would want to do is roll out a public health intervention and not understand the impact that it had for the different populations that you're trying to cover.
4: Now, it should be clear, race is not the only variable connected to why a person responds to a vaccine and another one doesn't. Age can also matter, so can other underlying medical conditions. You could also give the exact same vaccine to two different white men in their 50s, and the vaccine might work for one of them, but not the other. Biology can just be mysterious sometimes. There is still so much we don't know. But we do have clear examples of where race is a factor.
5: The classic examples would be for hypertensive, where that in the hypertension guidelines, there are clear recommendations based on race because we know that as a class, even though there is individual variation that as a class of drugs, they will have different effects on different populations.
4: Another example that comes to mind is asthma. Black and Latino children are known to not respond as well to abuterol, which is the most popular medication on the market to treat asthma attacks. There's been some compelling research to suggest that a genetic variant may be what's responsible here. And knowing someone might have that variant could save their life, since abuterol is the medication that most emergency rooms keep on hand to treat severe attacks. But much of this, we have really only started to understand over the last decade or so.
5: It is an increasingly recognized phenomenon, and the whole field of personalized medicine is revolving around this idea that there are subtle variations in our immune response, subtle variations in multiple genes that might not be apparent, but will affect our ability to respond to different medication.
4: Now, one thing that John mentioned is that it's important for a trial's patient population to match the scientific objectives of that trial. So he said, it's less critical that early stage trials be diverse because the main objective is to test a small number of people and make sure that drug or vaccine is safe. I looked at the data for six trials that had published results, and only one of them, the late stage trial for the drug room Disavere, had anything approaching diversity. But most of those trials were early stage. It's in phase three trials, which seek to test how well a drug or vaccine actually works, that diversity is absolutely critical.
6: Inside COVID-19,
7: is News.
0: South Africa's new daily COVID-19 infections have fallen significantly in the past month, raising optimism that the worst is behind us. But clinicians remind us, too, that this is not the time for complacency, as those in the Northern Hemisphere are finding out. Up next, from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, Europe is having a hard time getting young people to comply. Coronavirus cases are rising as the young adults... Of social distancing.
7: For months, Europe was under a lockdown during the pandemic. Borders were closed, people stayed home, and the number of coronavirus cases plummeted. Now restrictions are lifting, and in some places, cases are rising, especially among young adults. The Wall Street Journal's Boyan Pancheski is covering the story from Berlin. Hey there, Boyan. Hi there, hello. And Boyan, we're seeing a rise in cases in Europe, especially among young people. Why is this happening?
6: yeah well you see mark it's been like six almost six months of this pandemic and people and especially young people seem to be growing tired of the measures right i mean of course they know what the measures are i think at some point all of them have respected the measures as much as they could but now you see a sort of a widespread fatigue with the restrictions and people you know are just kind of eager to get on with things what happens here in berlin in fact in a park around the corner from where i live you pretty much have almost every night a illegal sort of mass party of ranging from dozens to hundreds of young people in their teens or in their early 20s who kind of congregate with music. You know, they have this Internet speakers and they play their own music and they bring their own booze and some of them bring their own drugs. And they just have these parties because the clubs are closed. And Berlin is famous for its club scene. You know, it's one of the sort of landmarks of the city, really. It's one of the tourist attractions of the German capital, the nightlife. And, you know, it's all shut down. It's been shut down since March. And I guess young people have found a way to kind of circumvent that. And that's also true of other cities in Germany. You know, you have more or less sort of clandestine parties. Some of them are not that clandestine. They take place, you know, in Frankfurt. A couple of weeks ago, there was a... Big, impromptu party in a central square to the point where the police had to intervene and there was some sort of altercation. People were throwing bottles at the police and so on. So we have parties taking place. We also have
7: travel opening up across the EU. People can move once again.
6: Is that also playing a role? Well, yes, authorities have said, medical authorities in several countries, including Germany, have said that the reopening of the borders on the continent and the restarting of the tourist season has played a role in the rise of the number of cases and spread of the infection. Essentially, quite a few of the small outbreaks in Germany now are said by the authorities to be due to people coming back from tourist hotspots such as Spain and bringing the virus with them and then infecting their communities. So definitely that has been a factor. I mean, if you look at Greece and Croatia to, and Spain, the three countries that have major tourism industries, all of them had the very low level of infection until you know July when tourism kind of restarted and now all of them are reporting an uptick in figures to various degrees. Greece has a smaller uptake, but Spain has a huge uptake, and Croatia was down to zero before the tourist season started, and now they also are struggling with the resurgence of the infection. Boyan, in
7: the U.S., we have seen several openings of businesses rolled back. You mentioned in Germany nightclubs have been ordered to remain closed. What more can the EU do to try to control this, especially among young people?
6: Well, it's getting very difficult. I mean, basically, the British government early on had some sort of studies from behavioral scientists saying that there's only a sort of a limited window of opportunity to make people follow these rules and these restrictions because they're very intrusive in people's lives. And young people sort of feel they're not really affected by this So governments are trying to appeal to their sense of solidarity. They're trying to sort of institute mandatory masking orders for the public transport, for certain public areas. They're trying different measures to mitigate the effect of this. But there is a big debate here in Germany and in other countries as well about, you know, what to do when society just sort of turns against the measures. And that seems to be happening to a certain degree in a certain demographic but also across the board perhaps. So I think governments are quite concerned and they don't really, you know, there's only so many measures they can take in a democratic society to make people follow these rules.
0: This has been episode 72 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the app. Also, by subscribing to Biznews Radio on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.